Today from Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father, Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he's comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of God for the people of God. As I read through this scripture a few weeks ago and beginning to put together this sermon, I kept thinking of that story from the Hebrew scriptures. You might remember, it's where King David has taken Bathsheba for himself, had her husband killed, and is living in sin, but he cannot see it. There is a prophet in the royal court, Nathan, who decides he has to bring this to King David's attention, and he tells him a parable. And as you're hearing the parable or reading the parable, you can see where this is going. You can see that it's going to indict David, but he cannot see it until the very end so often our media report about one scandal or another that have happened and as i read those stories i think how did they not know this was going to happen how did they think this was going to end well how did they not know this was going to end terribly but apparently as the saying goes you cannot see the forest for the trees that in the midst of our life experiences, often we cannot see the consequences of where our decisions are leading us. But as listeners and onlookers, we have the benefit of perspective and hindsight. It's easier for us to see what's going on from a distance. So Luke says that Jesus tells those who are gathered around him this parable 
starts the parable saying there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. He goes on to tell us that there is a poor man, Lazarus, down by the gate who's starving to death, just wanting a crumb. The man never sees him. Lazarus dies. Then the rich man also dies. And they meet again on the other side of death, Hades, the place of the dead. And the rich man notices that now Lazarus is with Father Abraham, the father of the Hebrew people, being comforted, and he's being tormented. And once he recognizes that he's in a lower position or more vulnerable position, he calls out for help. Now he wants Lazarus to come and rescue him. But Abraham says that cannot happen. It is too late. He says, well, well, even if it's too late for me, I have five brothers. Send him back to warn them. Abraham will have none of it. He says, no. They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He says, but oh, if you send somebody back, they will repent. Abraham is not convinced. He says, oh, if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets who they have already been given to, how will they even respond? Will they even notice someone who's been raised from the dead? Abraham doesn't think so. Luke's recounting of this parable demonstrates the ongoing concern Jesus has for the relationships between rich and poor in this world. It's a parable of warning about the dangers of riches and how they can blind us. Now, it's easy to go too far with a parable like this. You may have heard preachers say things about rich people being evil or all riches are evil. That's not what the parable says. Jesus never says that the rich man is evil or even has ill intent, only that he is blinded in a sense and cannot see the man near him in need. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, was a commentator as well. He wrote notes on the New Testament. He commented on this very passage. I put one of his quotes in your outline where he says, it is no more sinful to be rich than to be poor. That probably sounds good to us since we live in the richest country in the world. And even if we think there's other people in our country that are so much richer than we are, when we think about the world's populations, we realize the mere fact that we have access to clean water every day, food every day, things like public education and public assistance and scores of organizations working to meet needs of those all around us that surely we do live a rich lifestyle. Wesley goes on, after he says it is no more sinful to be rich than to be poor, which made me feel pretty good to say some things that are more difficult. The next sentence he writes, he says, but it is dangerous beyond expression. 
Therefore, I remind all of you, Wesley says, that are of this number, that have the conveniences of life and something over, that ye walk upon slippery ground. Wesley's saying we have to beware of what happens to us when we gain wealth because often, just as Jesus is talking about in the parable, it can blind us to the needs of those around us. The parable doesn't say that we have a problem because we are rich. Just before that, you can see the broader context. Luke gives it to us back earlier in this chapter. In the 14th verse, he tells us before this parable begins that Jesus is in a conversation with the Pharisees, and he says these particular Pharisees were lovers of money, and they ridiculed Jesus for his teaching. Jesus had just finished a section talking about the use of wealth. He ends that section with some words that I think will be familiar to you there in verse 13 of chapter 16. He ends this way, No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You cannot serve God and wealth. Jesus is saying there's only one master. You have to decide what's going to be at the center of your life. Is it going to be God and your life as a disciple, a follower of Christ? Or will you let something else occupy your priorities and your time and your effort? Maybe wealth or riches sometimes we get a box that says some assembly required i think these passages should have a little label on them that say some sacrifice required because wesley is saying that we have to be aware of our wealth as he looks at this parable from jesus and begins to comment on it he has seen among the Methodists, even though he was working primarily with working poor and poor people, that as they became spiritually disciplined and began to follow his method of discipleship, that almost inevitably they became more and more wealthy. That didn't bother him so much, but it bothered them that he noticed as they were rising in wealth, he says he noticed they became less sensitive to their neighbor's needs. And they became less willing to sacrifice for their faith. Wesley had some instructions when he preached a sermon on this passage. After he says it's no more simple to be rich than to be poor, and then tells us to beware that we are on slippery ground, he goes on to say some difficult things. I want to read a few of those sentences to you. He talks about, as Methodists, that he has these three movements that he wants us to pay attention to. He said to Methodists, gain all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. You may have heard that before, gain all you can, save all you can, give all you can. But he gives some other advice as he's writing about that. He says, having gained all you can by honest wisdom and unwearied diligence, the second rule of Christian prudence is save all you can. 
Do not throw the precious talent or wealth into the sea. Do not throw it away in idle expenses, which is just the same as throwing it into the sea. Expend no part of it merely to gratify the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eye, or the pride of life. Do not waste any part of so precious a talent merely in gratifying the desires of the flesh. Cut off all this expense. Despise delicacy and variety and be content with what plain nature requires. As I read that, I began to think maybe he's going too far with this. Maybe you feel the same way. But then you realize he's not finished. He's just getting warmed up. He goes on to say, but let not any man or person imagine that they have done anything barely by going thus far, by gaining and saving all he can, if he were to stop there. All this is nothing if a body go not forward, if one does not point all this at a farther end. Nor indeed can a man properly be said to save anything if he only lays it up for himself you may as well throw your money into the sea as bury it in the earth and you may as well bury it in the earth as in your chest at home or in the bank of england not to use it is effectually to throw it away so right after he says gain all you can or earn all you can When he talks about saving, it's not so that you accumulate wealth, but so that you can give it away. Spend less on yourself so that you can give more to others. After reading a sermon like that, I think I better understand why oftentimes in Wesley's life, he records in his journal that people started throwing things at him while he was preaching. He says things that people do not want to hear that are difficult to incorporate into our lives. I don't know about you, it makes me uncomfortable when I read things like this, when I hear this parable from Jesus or read Wesley's commentary on it. And then I realize Wesley's desire is just a deep and earnest desire to be as faithful to Christ and the gospel as he can be. He wants to do all that he can To be a faithful disciple of Christ and to help others do the same. And all of this grows out of his theology of understanding God as creator of all things. And if therefore God has created all things, then we are not owners of what we have, but we are trustees. Only given these things for a season of life while we are here to be used in accordance with God's will. Wesley wants to be a faithful disciple, believing that God has redeemed him through Jesus Christ and given him new life. He wants to respond in gratitude, so he is ready to sacrifice many things others around him had because he wanted to commit his all to God. He wants to give his all to God, and he wants to give as many of his resources away to those in need as possible he takes this parable about the dangers of riches to heart now notice the parable says if you're dead it's too late you can't make decisions about your resources then 
But the good news is, if you're still alive, you have a choice to make. You can decide what kind of steward or trustee you're going to be. You can manage the things you have control over in your sphere of influence and use them as you desire. And our faith, Wesley says, and Jesus is saying, has something to say about how we use those things God has entrusted to us. The parable starts by saying that this rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen feasted sumptuously every day. Every day, in other words, he did something extravagant. And that's just it. It is a daily pursuit. It is a daily decision about what we do with our resources. Wesley is willing to sacrifice as he goes through his life, as he's making decisions about faith. He uses his resources in certain ways because of his faith. It made me think of our commitment campaign that will be coming up in a few weeks. I will send you a letter asking you to think about how you're going to use your resources in the coming year and what percentage of those you're going to want to give back to God through the church. I think this parable and Wesley's cautions give us a head start on thinking and praying about what we're going to be doing in the future with our resources. I think about this choir and the bell choir and even the children's choir and how they come every week. How they sacrifice, if you will, some of their time that they might have just used with family or in leisure pursuits, but they come here and practice and rehearse. They take these great and wonderful, magnificent anthems and they break them down piece by piece, section by section, phrase by phrase, until they build them all back together again. So when they stand to sing or play, they lift our spirits. They move us into the presence of God and help us praise God in our hearts and minds. I don't think it's too strong to say they sacrifice for our good. They sacrifice on our behalf. They have to make decisions every week and every day if they're going to be true to their, to their commitment. I think the same is true about our money. We make small decisions, sacrifices, you might say, that over time begin to develop a life pattern. It is certainly a challenge to be a follower of Christ. I find in my own life, I take a step forward, and then I look up, and I've gotten off the path, or I've taken a step or two backward, and I have to refocus. I liked what one of the writers who was writing about diet and exercise said. I put it in your outline. He writes, it's not what you do some days that matters, but what you do most days. What you do most days has the most influence in shaping your character and the pattern of your life. I think it's true in diet and exercise. I find it to be true in prayer and study. I find it to be true in terms of use of resources as well. May God help us be a faithful disciple of Christ as we move forward together. Amen. And thanks be to God.